Good heavens, it's the Bobcast. Welcome to episode 7. Now, I'm going to do a really quick intro here. Um, I've been on tour uh, as I record this. I've been on, I'm halfway through a, a, a national tour. We did Adelaide and WA, thanks to everyone who came along. Um, flying out to Brisbane tomorrow, but by the time you hear this, those dates will be over. Uh, so I just want to say big thanks to everyone who's come to see me play live. Uh, I hope you've had a great time. Um, we've we've had an awesome time. And uh, I'll be back on the road really, really soon. Just check uh, my Facebook uh, and bobevans.com.au for details of where I will be playing around the place. Now, Good Evans, it's a Bobcast, episode 7. I know that I promised that I would be talking to my wonderful uh, touring partner, Melody Poole, who I've spent uh, the last couple of weeks with touring around the country. We just we were supposed to do a uh, to have a record a conversation on tour, but there was never any time. The schedule's been crazy, and it hasn't happened yet. But I'm still hoping that it will happen. So, what's happened is, uh, you know, in these kind of situations where you've got to kind of call someone and say, "Hey, can you do me a really big favor?" Um, I called my good friend Cav Templey, who would probably know as the singer, uh, bass player from Eskimo Joe. Um, I also made a record uh, with him and Josh Pike and Steve Parkin under the name Basement Birds um, quite a few years ago now. And Cav graciously said, yep, let's do it. We'll, we can do it tonight. And uh, he really uh, did me a solid, as they say. So I I, uh, I thank him very much for that. And I think that, you know, goes a, a, a long way to kind of uh, reflecting his character as well. So I hope you enjoy our chat don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist where I put up all the songs. It's the Good Evans It's the Bobcast official soundtrack. Um, if you want to listen to the music that we talk about during the the podcast. All right, let's get to it. Here it is. This is episode seven of Good Evans It's a Bobcast. <laughs> Bobcast, Mr. Cav Templey. How you going? Well, I'm very, very good. I, I never know whether to call you Kev, Bob, or just Bevins, as you are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, what what makes you feel what what makes you feel more comfortable? You're my guest, Cav. I want you to feel comfortable, and if you can call me whatever you like. Uh, well, dickheads probably out of the question. But, um, <laughs> I would call you. I, I I think I'm going to call you Kev. I think it would be pretty hard to keep up for like you know the entire conversation referring to me as dickhead, but I would be kind of impressed if it just well, like if just <laughs> well anyway, dickhead. I was uh... yeah. <laughs> uh, straight. Yeah, uh, look, that, it works for me, but you know, I don't know. I, I think we might be losing a bit of our demographic, though. I I think these days my demographic is kind of like post forty year old female school teachers with three children. <laughs> oh come on, Rincholi. no no. That's a Surely good demographic, not. man. Come on. Well, that's not, of course. I mean, I'm they're the, educated. I'm, they've you know they've lived. I'd be the last person to to uh, <laughs> to talk down to that demographic. However, I do feel your demographic is probably 
a little bit broader than what you probably give yourself credit for. Maybe, maybe. I, d- I do like the idea of, if, you know, maybe, in, maybe they can call me their fancy man. You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm just like a fantasy away from the, you know, the common life. Because, you know what? Not, not, not saying that being a school teacher is, is common, but, I, <laughs> but you know, but maybe they, they, they can see me as just a little escape, you know, their fancy man. You know what's great, like, also, too, about, you know, having uh, mature... <laughs> it's like, I can't believe we're getting straight into this, but this is great. Um, like, uh, I've just been on... on I've, I've been in the middle of a tour, right? The first yeah. went down, and we, we saw each other just the other day at, in Perth on the tour. And Anyway, the, the opening night uh, in Adelaide on Thursday night, um, this girl, her name's Tina. And, yeah. um, you know, she's a mature woman. I don't know how old she is, but she's a mature woman. And um, she came down at Soundcheck and... Delivered me a bottle of wine as a little present. Wow! And like, see, this is a this is kind of you know this is kind of one of the one of the little fringe benefits of uh, of having the older demographic as as we've now been referring to it. I, I'm actually open to treats of of any kind. Absolutely, those little thoughtful, beautiful, thoughtful kind of uh, things kind of happen. Are very unexpected and uh, very much appreciated. You just got to make sure it's a sealed bottle of wine because you know you just don't know in this. It, oh, would, what do you well, say? They're just going to well, poison it. You know, traditionally, do you remember how how it was? I mean, this probably still happens sometimes, but I don't think I've done it for a long time. Where you're on stage and someone like brings you a beer, and even if you're not yeah. like a beer drinker, you feel some like stupid obligation to scull the whole Absolutely. thing Absolutely. in front of the whole yep. crowd. You're like, yeah, and you just scull it all. Yeah, they could have put something in there. I know. You know, you, I know. you might. So it's dangerous, but I think you know we obviously come from a slightly more innocent age. No, I mean, no, you're right about that. You know, in the live scenario, very often, you know, people will, you know, hand you a beer, and 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 it is there is a then an expectation, a pressure to, like you said, to scull it because it becomes part of the show, becomes part of the theatre, and you know that it's going to win. It's it's like just an easy, it's like winning points. You know, with the I, I remember, I remember like working out quite early on in my music career that it was great smoking weed when you're writing a song, but a really terrible idea if you're about to step onto stage. Oh, and yes. um, and I think we were like, you know, on one of those, these god awful, you know, as you know, when you're from Western Australia, you do used to do these like god awful. 10 week tours we would do because we could that's that's you know that's we had to just stay on the road for as long exactly. as possible once you crossed over the great fucking australian bite yep there was no going back until every fucking city in australia had been covered and Absolutely. you're right i mean that's that's how that's how jebs did it in the early days and yeah it was I, a common I do, thing i do feel like the kids today you know do it a little bit differently but um you know with their laptops and their rap, <laughs> da- rap dance and their you know, donkey kong um but you know i i remember going on on one of these really long tours and we, you know we'd smoke a, a cheeky joint maybe during the day or on our days off or whatever you know kids did and i remember talking about it because we had a really crap gig in like bendigo or somewhere like that and no one right. turned up and we decided it'd be a really good idea to smoke you know, probably a cone. We were probably smoking bloody cones at that point in time. Yeah, and doing out of a can. We... Yeah, that's probably right. Probably out a of a, co- a crunched a... up Coke can or something. That's right. Yeah, an emu export. Um, yeah. And but then uh, we did, but working out that it was such a bad idea because we got on stage and it was just horrendous, like the mm. worst, the worst experience ever. So. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, there were a couple of times in the very, very early days of Jebediah where. I got stoned before gigs and it was okay, but yeah, I had some horrendous, horrendous experiences too. 
I don't remember you ever getting stoned. Actually, I don't. No, you... well, I, I, I kind of, I, I kind of got into smoking pot a little bit. <laughs> I can't believe we're talking about this. Um, <laughs> Come on, it's, it's. Hey, look, they're, they're, it's, it's legal now. Doctors have just started prescribing <laughs> it in New South Wales. It's, it's a topical subject. Look, my, my stoner years were short, um, which, which may come as a surprise to people, considering that you know Jebediah kind of sort of celebrated aspects of that lifestyle. Um, mm. in, in, in our early days. And, and we did, you know, we, we did bond over that. But, um, but yeah, I, I didn't go the distance with it uh, at all. I, I, I kind of, uh, it just stopped being fun, basically. And when something stops being fun... Maybe that's what drug education should actually be, just working out the drugs that do work for you and the ones yeah. that don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, that could be harmful because... Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that it could be the opposite, you know. Like, this, could, this could help a lot of people, you know. Like, weed is considered one of those less harmful drugs, but for some yeah. people it's catastrophic, you know. Exactly, exactly. And that, that's, that is true. Hey, um... Mm. I, I wanted to to sort of make mention of this because it's you know I, I don't know if you realise but it's uh, as we speak tonight and mm. as pe- when people hear this it'll be next week but as we speak tonight via Skype um, I'm mm. a, a, in my garage here in uh, Ocean Grove in Victoria you I'm assuming are in at your in Fremantle I'm I'm in the jam room that we yep. recorded the basement made the basement bears record yes. yes I have very fond memories of that room and. But tonight is quite a historical night because it, it's. Did you realise it's census night? Oh fuck! Okay, no. Yep. Good, good. <laughs> well, it's well, it's just good to know because I'm. I've got a um. I've got a, a a lady who's come over from Adelaide who I'm recording her EP, and her um. She's a really interesting character. She um. Uh, she promotes this. What are they called? They're called the the cockatoos or something like that but they she puts on she does publicity stuff in Adelaide as well as having her own um kind of band that she does her name's Coral Chandler but she also uh puts on this footy game called I think it's the Mud Rock or what's it called I should know this but anyway they do uh Tim Rogers was the was the coach oh yeah Uh, it's the community wrestling cup that's right yeah so she's one of the main organizers of that and um she's She's staying tonight with her boyfriend, who is a circus performer, and like, but like a high-level circus performer who's been um, performing since he was like apparently eight years old or something. He's like proper carny, um, and um, and so he's a he's an amazing chap. And so uh, you know when they you fill in the census and they're like, who stayed at your house tonight? <laughs> It's just a regular. Free, you've just painted the most cliched. Like that's just a regular day for you. Oh yeah, it's just. Oh, what date? This is the census date. Yeah. Oh, who's in the house? Yeah, we got a juggler. We yeah. got tomatoes. It's yeah. all cool. Look, apparently, apparently he does. He, look, he does like he's actually an acrobat. I would say would be his um, official term in carny yep, terms. Yep. But um, yep. he also. Uh, it's funny because he doesn't do hula hoop or contortion, and uh, and I, I didn't realize. But there's like rivalries about amongst the different levels of what you do, you know. Right. Um, well, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, yeah. there's rivalries in every industry, right? I mean, that's right. You know, I'm, bloody, I say, bloody so. So what you're saying is that there's there's like acrobats and contortionists kind of 
Well, contortionists so, are kind of like you, you know they're the they're the kind of the the bottom dwellers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, you know, I, I love crayfish. I'd like crabs. Um, you know, they're 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 the bottom feeders, but they're amazing. And so the, the contortionists are kind of on the ground the whole time, you know, doing their yeah. thing or or on a spinning plate or something. Whereas the acrobats are leaping, bounding through the air. They're mm. they're like they're the they're the birds. Where would the singer songwriter be then? I've I've got a feeling singer songwriter is definitely a bottom feeder. <laughs> I I don't know. I hate to say it, and I don't I don't I don't like to usually talk the uh, ourselves up. You know, we should we should remain like think of ourselves as bottom feeders, but we are the ringleaders. I'm afraid, Kev. We're the <laughs> ones who walk into the venues like roll up, roll up. Yeah, but we're not the predators. The predators are like, you know, the big pop stars, I reckon. They're the ones at the top of the tree making all the money. Yeah, but pop, star, pop stars don't make money anymore. The only the, the rock stars of the creative world are the advertisers, the people who are, <laughs> who are creating these commercials who you're like, wow, have you seen that commercial? It's amazing. And, you know, they, they, do the, they seem to get paid lots of money. They're just, you know, they're doing their thing. They are the, they're the rock stars of the creative world. <laughs> um, Cav, I want to uh, sort of, or maybe actually, I was going to say, I was going to sort of start the, the step back in time and talk about, you know, the, your your backstory, your, your childhood and stuff. But maybe before we do that, mm-hmm. for all the Bobcasters out there listening, I know that there's at least five of them. Well, let's let's start by, you know, how how we how we sort of came came to meet, and and as a lot of people w- would know. It would know you, Cav, from as being the bass player and singer from Eskimo Joe, but you're probably more well known as being one quarter of the Basement Birds. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I mean, doing a side project, I reckon, in any band is something that everybody should do. But it's it's a you know it's a bit contentious, and I don't know how it was for you going off doing Bob Evans for the first time, but I certainly, uh, for me, felt really invigorated by doing something like Basin Birds. I came back mm. to my ba- my band just going, oh my God, I've like, I've got all these ideas and I feel like, and you know, it's refreshing and I feel completely yeah. like, you know, bathed in the waters of creativity. But then I came back and, and you know, some members of the band were a little... Uh, I guess cross, uh, you know, that I'd gone off and done done that, like I'd kind of let the team right. down, and yeah, I right. and I and I've analysed it a lot over the years. Like, um, you know, some parts makes me feel that uh, it was that kind of breaking of the brotherhood or whatever, you know, that we always just stay together, do our thing, and mm. um, and the other part of me feels like. Uh, you know, we we have such an advantage as being the singer songwriters in in the bands, and I and I do feel like all the great bands are some of their parts, and I know that you feel yeah. the same. And it's that that thing of uh, you know you uh, you get a band together like you two, for example, and Bono, you know, will do his Bono thing, and the Edge will do his Edge thing, and so on. And it's just it makes up a great band, and mm. you know, one of them by themselves is never quite as exciting. And, and I remember kind of going back, feeling like I wanted to bring all of these great experiences experiences into Eskimo Joe but uh, they weren't really interested so much yeah well I guess you know it's difficult I mean it's an interesting kind of points that you raised there you know from my experience I mean by the time we got to doing Basement Birds I'd sort of been metaphorically fucking around for a while (laughs) but um but yeah when I first started doing Bob Evans I mean the guys in Jebs were really supportive but um but yeah I mean there, there may have been moments where I mean because the thing is it's kind of it's like another marriage, you know. You're kind of married to each other. Absolutely. You're living in each other's pockets. Your 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 destinies are entwined, 
um, your finances are entwined. You're, you're, mm-hmm. um, you know, you sacrifice so much to spend all this time, and you, you really do, you know, and that does create, you know, a, a great bond. But yeah, when you do something outside of that, just like if you were, you know, in a in a relationship with somebody and you started seeing other people. You know, it's understandable that um, could sort of, uh, you know, open up some vulnerabilities and stuff. Um, it, yeah, it does, it, but I it, think, it, like, at the end of the day, though, very much in the same way where in relationships, you know, in that old saying, if you love someone, you need to set them free. I think what happened with Jeb and I, you know, we've, we've been friends since we were at school. I'm like, you know, the drummer's my brother, so we are actual family. <laughs> yes. I think they, they realised that it was something that I had to do and that I was... And I think they understood that I was, I tried really hard to always, to make it so separate. I mean, I called myself Bob Evans for, for one. I never, ever played Jebediah songs solo. Mm. I really, I was, I always tried as hard as I could to kind of respect the Jebediah thing and not ride on its coattails. Mm. And, mm. and um, you know, fortunately for us, like in time, we came back together and um, and I think... Now all that shit's in the past, you know. Like I, I meant to ask as well, um, how when you first went out and played Bob Evans stuff, how what did you do in your set list? Because I'm I'm about to do a tour, and I and I've I've got to put together like an hour twenty show, and I'm about to, and it starts with me releasing an EP of four songs, and I've and I've got maybe like another four or five songs that I'm really really happy with, but I'm going to record my record over the next like six months in in a, in a number of EPs. Um, but uh, what did you play when you first went out in the well, road? Well, see, my situation is completely... Well, yeah, I think it's... it's Okay, it's not completely different, but it's it's pretty different. Because <laughs> for, for starters, when I first started doing the Bob stuff, Jebs were still in their infancy. And, I, you know, I, I was doing live shows for fucking probably about six years before I released anything. Um, and sure. I was literally playing down at the Grosvenor Hotel, which is this you know little pub in Perth that I don't think does gigs anymore. But um, and I would literally just be playing to my housemates and the bar staff <laughs> on, a, on a Wednesday night, and I'd play for twenty minutes, twenty five minutes. Um, I didn't, and I was literally doing that for about six years. It wasn't until two thousand three where I made the first record that then I actually started doing like headline shows, still playing to bugger all people, but and 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 you know maybe playing for an hour, maybe. Uh, but mm. by then, I'd you know that was off the release of records. So I was pretty much just playing everything I had. So yeah, in those those first few gigs, I mean, I was really only playing sort of like five or six songs. You know, those songs that I played in those early days never ended up on that first record. You know, they isn't were, that funny? So you know your your situation that you talk about now, you know, is is quite different because you're going into it. Your entry level is. Uh, is a little bit more uh, is a little bit higher up than what, where my where I sort of entered in. I I, I entered a bit more under soft uh, softly. I entered <laughs> softly. What's what's the plan now? You've got like oh you're about to release an EP and maybe when this podcast comes out I think it'll it'll be out. Yeah, the first yeah. Um, four songs will be released, which is amazing because I flagged as you know that the, I tried to be very um, diplomatic about the approach to um, stepping away from the band and doing something by myself because it is quite a statement I guess you know we've done six Eskimo Joe records mm. and um, it's quite a statement to walk away and go okay I'm going to do a, a, a 
uh, album under my own name, as opposed to Basement Birds, where it was, you know, it, the the reason why it was so refreshing is because you had four songwriters and you only really needed to write maybe three songs, maybe exactly. four, you know, yeah. uh, which is fine. Um, so this, uh, I have to, I don't have to, but I've always wondered what it'd be like to kind of uh, conceive a whole concept myself and follow it through. Mm. Um, and it's a ridiculous amount of work by yourself because you don't have anybody else picking up the slack. But um, but how I kind of worked out that uh, it was all going to happen is I I just recorded, mixed and mastered the first four songs and put it out. And I'm about to put it out there by the time this goes to air. It, it'll yeah. be out, out there. Um, and then... It'll be interesting because as that comes out, then I'll go and record the next four songs. And then as that comes out, I'll do the next four songs and, and yeah, so yeah. on. So it's yeah. a really interesting way to do it. I've never done it before. So I had to actually sit down like a painter does and at, when they're doing an exhibition or something and decide that, uh, you know, I got this email from both of our manager, Kath, saying, okay, what are the names of the four EPs? <laughs> and like, and what's the concept behind them? And I was like, oh yeah, God. Yeah. Um, and not, 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 I didn't want to sound like a fool and just be like, I don't know. I just kind of jam and it's, and it sounds good. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I, I took the challenge on and yeah, I, I kind of came up with this manifesto behind each EP, which was actually quite cool as well. So what is it? Okay, well, I got to remember it now. But the the, <laughs> the, the, the first the first EP um, is called Hope Street, and um, it's it's kind of it's it's an idea of like because I you know I've stepped away from the Eskimo Joe thing. I hope we go make another record. I don't know if we ever will, but I really hope we do. But I'm just basically giving myself this open window to go do what I'm doing creatively and see where it lands. So it's called Hope Street, and the idea is it's it's like the wishes that we make. You know, like we all. We all kind of, uh, you know, call it the white picket fence, you know, thing or whatever. We we put this this wish out, and it's you know to to have the mortgage, to have the house, you know, to to do these you know things with our lives and tick all these boxes, um, and uh, and and that's kind of what the the songs were about. They're all this kind of this wish, and then the next one um, is going to be called Summer of Descent. And it's about looking back at the old stories about these, you know, or, you know, as we grow older, I mean, I'm, I'm, t I'm turning, I just turned 38 this year. So it's a, it's a really interesting period in my life. I've met this girl who's like the love of my life, you know, at, at this point where I just, again, it wasn't, it wasn't the actual white picket fence thing I thought it was going to be. I had kids and then that, that, that marriage didn't work. And then I, I kind of messed around a bit and met this woman who was amazing and, uh, and so I'm at this amazing place, but it's it's a really great time to look back at these old stories. So Summer of Descent is the is the stories that led me up to now, which is the second EP, and then the third EP uh, is Sober, which is um, about uh, being in the present and this this kind of place that I'm at at the moment, and just this clear headedness and, and looking forward. And I can't remember what the fourth EP was called, but <laughs> but I guess I think we'll just, like you've yeah. <laughs> but you you know you touched on something that is like interesting to me. You know, when you you refer to it as the white picket fence thing, you know, it's that idea that you know the aspirations that we have for ourselves, you know, perhaps sometimes they're not necessarily aspirations that we ne necessarily came up with for ourselves. Maybe they're they're like you know aspirations that we feel like in order to kind of be a proper adult or to to achieve in life in in a way that is you know is in line with society's norms 
then Absolutely. we you know we subscribe to some of this stuff and what you're talking about is like what I, what I'm really looking for and towards is beyond the white picket fence yeah this because right. it's kind of a construct you know it's an absolutely and I, th- I think we're all some people more than others but I think to some small degree we're all guilty of it at times it's such a it's such a seductive sale as well of yeah. like you know you will tick all these boxes and you'll be you know you'll be comfortable in your life and 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 unfortunately comfortable in australia means fucking tracky pants on the couch watching netflix we're like oh isn't it great we did all these things and, and now we're watching netflix together sometimes it's kind of devoid of the idea of happiness what about happiness what about makes what makes you happy why shouldn't happiness be the goal rather than like this idea of what is supposed to make you happy, you know. And well, I, d- I mean, like we're getting into deeper waters here, but the, yeah. but you know, what what you're talking about is the idea that people, a lot of people, don't know. You know, they get they get sold this beautiful idea through religion or or television or you know, whatever society tells you it needs to happen. But i.e. the white picket fence, you get that, you have happiness. So they do it. And they're not happy. And at, at, at the end of the day, um, you have to evolve as a human in yourself and grow all the time. And if you're really, really lucky, you get to grow with that person who you marry or get together when you're as a childhood sweetheart. If, Some you're, people, if you're lucky enough to you know, legally marry in this country, as many, <laughs> exactly. many of our brothers and sisters aren't. Exactly. And that's a really, really, really good point as well. But you know, if you, you might meet this person early on and they, you might kind of decide that you know, you're going to buy into all this idea that that's going to make you happy. I mean, I'm all for saying yes, fuck it, just go for it. But uh, but I do think you should be open to the idea that, and I think intelligent enough to be able to kind of look beyond that. And uh, a lot of the, a lot of people just kind of aren't brave enough to go there, unfortunately. Sometimes you got to fuck up and make mistakes to kind of uh, to learn some stuff. <laughs> I'm interested, you know, we talk yeah. about the that that the sort of white picket fence, and that sort of leads yeah. me into my le- next sort of line of questioning. Mm. You as a kid, did you grow up with the white picket fence experience? You know, we've talked a little bit about your upbringing. I know some elements of it and there's some of, you know, it's, it's a really interesting, fascinating kind of backstory. And I, and I think if we talk about that a little bit, it might kind of, you know, might kind of give us more clarity about the whole, that sort of white picket fence thing. What was your, what, what are your earliest memories of growing up and how, what was your family like? Well, uh, my family life is my my mum and dad got together when they both had a, a child each, um, and when they met each other, I think it was considered a really positive situation because they're both from farming communities in Western Australia, so they they had a lot in common with each other. But um, they worked out by the time I was about three or four that they really had uh, nothing in common, and uh, and it wasn't a very positive situation. So they so they split. Um, and uh, my mum got into the whole uh, world, the Sanyasin world, which uh, or the Orange People, as they were called back in the day. And if you and if you grew up in Fremantle, especially, you would, would have remembered the Orange People. Uh, do you remember the Orange People when you when you were younger? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, and and my memory of the Orange People pretty much is boiled down to one moment, which is probably the sort of quite the mainstream kind of national kind of moment where. There was that uh, I can't even remember her name. The woman, uh, she was like, oh, oh yeah, uh, um, uh, Sheila. Sheila and, 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 and her sixty like, minutes on tough, sixty minutes. She, tough and titties. she was tough titties. What yeah. a, what a catchphrase. Well, Classic. What could, well, what uh, could they say? Tough titties. 
that was my only. That's all I knew about the Orange People movement. Well, she, that, that's it. Well, she she was an interesting part of it all, but um, but basically what happened for for myself is my mum kind of rejected the whole white picket fence thing uh, because it it you know had been kind of thrust on her and she'd rejected it and like a lot like a lot a lot of. Uh, people of that, that post-baby boomers, post-war generation, um, they got to the kind of... By the time they got somewhere between the 70s and the 80s, everybody was actually looking at uh, self-help in and self-realisation. Uh, and and in a, in, in a, it was brand new for the West. In the, in, in the East, they've been doing it for years. And this guy, and this guy Bhagwan, um, he became quite popular because he uh, invented... Uh, these two forms of meditation called uh, like dynamic meditation and kundalini meditation um, and they were group meditations um, and traditionally meditations had been something you do by yourself but he'd created this group meditation because he'd really recognized the loneliness of, of humans and the fact that people like to be in groups doing stuff um, and, and he became really popular in the 70s and by the time it got to the 80s he was like you know getting driven around in limousines with you know uh, or Rolls Royces and, and stuff. And then you had Sheila, who was this crazy motherfucker who came in and uh, she got all high on the power and her and a doctor conspired and started to poison people. And, yeah, it was like... How? Uh, well, they basically... So this main guy, Bhagwan, he was just he was just basically just... He was preaching... I guess is what you'd call it, but they call, they call them discourses. So people would come in and they would ask him questions, and he would um, answer the questions. And and a lot of these discourses got turned into books, which are people who are still into the movement, like will read these books and stuff. But um, but but really, uh, what happened is he took a vow of silence at a certain point. He just kind of got there and was like, "Yeah, I've said all I have to say. I'm just going to chill out and ride around in Rolls Royces and shit." <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so Sheila was in charge of the whole empire, and she the power went to her head massively. And there was there was a doctor and a lawyer who because he because this guy Bhagwan started to get quite um, ill. And um, the the doctor and the lawyer started to get quite close, and they got really uh, paranoid. Uh, this Sheila and this other guy, who maybe was another lawyer or something, I don't know. Anyway, so they decided to try and poison them, and because they're all living in America in Oregon at this time, and and anyway, that was the point where he broke his, uh, where Bhagwan broke his vow of silence. Was like, <laughs> and was like, okay, this is fucking crazy, man. Like, I don't know what's going on here, but there's people poisoning each other, and that's not cool. Yeah. But um, what the American government did because they were absolutely shit scared uh, about the whole thing, um, and uh, they put him in in jail for tax evasion, and he got very very sick when he was in jail. Um, so they ended up releasing him and, and he went back to India and that was about 1990 and um, he changed his name to Osho at that point in time because he was just like, well, that era is over. Hang on, hang on, hang on. So, hang on, so... <clears throat> and Sheila went back he, to... She, she went so to Switzerland. He, he was in trouble for tax evasion. Yeah. Well, and he, he got, got very, very sick. He, got, he was in trouble for tax evasion and got, um, got put in jail. And... Uh, and while he was in jail, he started to get like very, very ill. Yeah. And and so he, um, they eventually released him because they couldn't really charge him for anything. But uh, but they were after Sheila and the lawyer who had been trying to poison this doctor and somebody else. 
and they ran off to Switzerland, which is where they still live. Right, um, okay. Yeah, but, but Osho, as he was now renamed, went back to India and started this ashram, which is still there today. And, and what it is, uh, if you take away all of the craziness and power and, and freaky, freaky freakness, um, it's a school of mysticism. It's basically about meditation. And so it's still really, really popular because people from all over the world go there and learn really advanced versions of meditation and all the rest of it. Um, but uh, And I, I ended up going to India after Osho had died um, at about in about 1990, 91. And I met a bunch of kids from a school in England called Koswan, which was like a, a sannyasin school in England, like a international boarding school. And, and I went back there for a while and uh, it was amazing because when I left um, Perth, it was like Fremantle. I don't know if you remember Fremantle back in those days, but there was all these gang- these gangs, like the Wanderers. They had like, you know, classic names like that. And, and there was like full and violence. Like it like Frio was a really violent place. And Absolutely. I think- Frio, you know, for people outside of Perth, you know, Frio in the 80s, and this is my sort of memory and perspective of it and, and you know, sort of chime in if I'm if I if you think I've got it wrong but in the 80s it was you know still a very much working class tough kind of dock uh kind of town and the America's Cup happened in 1987 and and that uh, and it was wasn't until then that like a bunch of money was invested into the place and it became revitalized and um uh, but but up until 1987 it was yeah, it was it was rough as guts, right? You know, it was, yeah. it was a tough it was a tough place. Pretty much, and it was still pretty tough after nineteen eighty seven. That it, that was the beginning of it, of 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 it gentrifying. But Fremantle's quite an in- interesting place because uh, you you had the port, but you also had all of the Portuguese uh, and Greek fishermen, and then the Italian market gardeners. But then you had like people like my parents, like my mum, uh, going in there, and all the artists went in there, and they like kind of like New York. Like uh, there was all this warehouse space in in the middle of Fremantle, and they basically all went in there and started art studios. And that's and that's when people talk about Fremantle as having the vibe or whatever. Uh, that's where that comes from. It's that mixture of these cultures of like working class and and arts and 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 all of that kind of stuff. But but yeah, I in in nineteen eighty nine it was still pretty rough. And I went over to India and I met all the kids from this school in England. And I was like, when I left, I was like into Akadaka and Guns N' Roses, which don't get me wrong, are, are, are freaking awesome. But then but then I I got to uh, I met all these kids in England from this uh, school called Koswan, and I and I managed to get the money together to go back and actually um, do uh, at, to go to school there. And uh, they had an amazing music festival and music room uh, that uh, that so I would do like a double maths period and uh, and between periods of maths we'd go and just jam for five minutes and then come back and keep doing our maths period and it was the first time I actually started to excel at school and it was a massive brain flip for me because I just I this sounds really terrible but I started to rediscover like sting and <laughs> and like look, and re- why yeah, do you say that's out. terrible why does that sound well, terrible uh, well, you know, look, there's some, I still love The Police and I, there's a couple of Sting songs, but, you know, going back now, you know, I listen back and I'm like, oh boy, it's pretty guilty. <laughs> it's pretty guilty, a lot of it. But uh, but for me, I, got, I it just totally knocked me out of that bogan thing that was happening in, in Western Australia. And techno had just broken in, in England at the time. So I started getting, going into raves and stuff like that. And I was, I was only like 13. And then I came back and I was, I came back to Perth and I was a fucking alien to like all the kids. So I went to school with like, I was a 
raver basically who like who could play slap bass you know i was really i used to pride myself on the idea of playing slap bass and now i i run these songwriting workshops for kids uh from 13 to 18 and i love it but every time a kid comes in who plays slap bass, I'm just like, let me tell you a story. <laughs> uh, I used to play slap bass. Here's a story. And, uh, and it, a and it, named Cavi. <laughs> and slap bass never ended up on one of my albums. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, you know, the what back to the white picket fence thing, um, by the time I, I, I went and had been a bloody rock star or whatever you want to call it for a couple of years and, and met this woman who I'd fallen in love with and we're going to have, and we had decided to have children. Um, I had never, I'd thought that the whole, that whole bourgeois idea of, you know, getting in your trackies and getting behind a white picket fence was the biggest load of crap ever. Um, I believed in love. I believed in commitment and fierce loyalty for life. Um, but only if two people were growing and evolving together and, uh, and what unfortunately happened for me is, uh, yeah, we, 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 fell out of sync with each other but I do think that um, what happened for me moving on to this place where I you know feel like I'm at a really good place in my life with my music and my, and love and everything um, is that you know yeah you do you do it is very easy to buy into into the white picket fence thing but also like doing what we've done and I don't know if I don't know if I can really liken myself to even bands like Jet, who had such a massive experience as an Australian band. Um, you, if when you have a level of fame, you kind of get pushed through this very small hole, and it's it can be uncomfortable and exhilarating. And you come out the other side, and you're not not you feel a little bit sideways. Um, and I definitely felt for myself. And I think Kev, you're you're actually a really great shiny example of someone who has managed to um, sidestep a little bit of that that trippiness that goes on with you know uh, being your ego being fed on a regular basis doing music and and I think any band in any uh, you know part of the ladder can can say that you know you go you have experiences when you're in a in a rock and roll band that that no one that other people don't get to have and uh, unless they've got lots of money, and like we would go to the, we'd go to fancy restaurants, you know, we would do gigs, and people would like they still do it, and they like you know corner off places, parts of bars, and we go there and we drink fancy alcohol, and then there's just like pretty girls hanging out, and all these kinds of weird things, and people want to know about you. That can do a very strange thing to people's brain, and I think going into having a family and stuff, it took me a while to actually come down off all of that crap, basically, and I don't, and you know what. I would really regret it if I hadn't have, you know, actually enjoyed myself and had fun and gone and all, on all those crazy adventures that you get to go on when you're in a band. But I, I do now, you know, I don't believe that as creative people that we have to, um, you know, give up our creative life after we, you know, say goodbye and bury officially our, our crazy free will in 20s and we move into our dignified 30s, you know, like, <laughs> you know, only to on the on the doorstep of, of our, you know, fantastic 40s or whatever you call it. But um, but I don't believe like I look at people like Nick Cave as a great example, and like you know he did uh, like Let Love In, is it with it? Is, is that the album with like Do You Love Me? Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he so. Did, think he so. did that. At, he did that at forty, you know, and yeah. um, and he he has this, you know, as everybody everybody kind of knows, like he has this kind of nine to five mentality where you shut the door and you walk into the jam room and you just get your work done. 
And even if it's even if it's terrible, you you then leave, and then you come, and then you go, and you spend time with your family, or um, you know, or you walk in one day, and it's amazing, and you come back, and you tell your family all about it. But uh, I do believe that you know part of that myth, like we were talking about before, of, of the rock star and uh, and creativity, and you know, dying at twenty seven or whatever you want to call it, like it is it is a bunch of bullshit. But you have to evolve, and you have to you have to go past that idea of the white picket fence um, yeah. to. To, to get to that next place creatively. You've got to come out the other side. It's about yeah. coming out the other side, you know? And, and, we, like, pro- and we probably and continuously have to do that. And Paul Kelly. I mean, yeah. we love to use Paul Kelly as an example of a creative force in Australia. And, I mean, like going to your show the other night, I loved it. Like I really, really enjoyed a lot of the new songs and uh, I, I loved it because of having written songs together. I could I could look at those songs and, and you know, probably analyse them a little bit more than other people and go, oh, he's doing that thing that he does here and he does there. <laughs> but but in saying that, I was totally taken by and, and really appreciated the, the stylistic kind of, uh, you know, uh, flavor that you've continued to go through with your songwriting um so and you know how old are you now 56 so you know, <laughs> you, i think you're doing very well you know <laughs> thanks gab no no I, I appreciated you coming down that was a, it was actually it was a really great show and you know i mean you I, I i just let you go then because i think you were you know saying <laughs> no you were saying a lot of really interesting things and um but i didn't want to interrupt you and kind of you know, get on to my, my thing. But, um, you know, I, I find that now when I play shows like that at Mojo's in Fremantle, it's, it's a, for people who don't know, it's a, it's a small bar. It holds like a couple hundred people. Um, and just playing to a, 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 an intimate venue that's just full of people that are just really just, they're like, yeah, the people that have just supported you harder than anybody, you know, 20 years on, and like you say, you know, um, we've both to, to varying degrees and, and we've had different experiences, but a lot of similar experiences as well. You know, I just find that I have a whole different appreciation and a different outlook than I did, thank Christ, than I did, or you know, in the in the 90s or whatever. Um, you know, when Jeb and I were at the peak of their commercial success, I was still a teenager and totally unprepared completely unprepared very emotionally mature fucking incredibly um uh self-conscious um and you know which isn't to say that i didn't have a great time had a really great time but i also you know i wasn't uh I, I, I certainly didn't have a mature head, you know? And, yeah. And, but um, I, I mean, I, I know I've told you this story before, but um, when, when we played Recovery, when, you know, we were 19 or whatever, and you were playing about the, the seventh single of, <laughs> of, sli- <laughs> of Slightly Odd Way. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, I, I just remember, like, for, for me, it was a really, really foreign thing. And I was, I, like you said, I you know, trying to get your head around the whole thing. It was it was complete mystery and quite scary and all the rest of it. But we put, we got to play sweater and I was stoked because recovery was massive. You know, for anyone who lived through that At the era, time, yeah, it, yeah, it was huge. But um, I remember seeing you and I, I don't know if we're, we're allowed to talk about this uh, on yeah, podcast, but talk. clearly you'd been up all night and uh, I was heavily intoxicated. Uh, <laughs> and 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 you were like, what what's the what's the song? Is it is it? It's not military strong, but it's like ba 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 da. Oh, Teflon. We yeah, were Teflon. going off. What's what's the song called? I think it might be Teflon. 
Teflon. It was Teflon, yeah. Anyway, I mean, you always it, played a couple of songs on that show, but yeah, that it was, was it was yeah the the blah 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 blah, and between each like verse, you were just like licking your lips because they were so dry, and you had your beanie down and all the rest of it. And afterwards, you were just you were talking to one of the hosts, Jane Jane Gazzo, who was like a super cutie at the time, and I was so fucking impressed because I was just like. I could, like I tried my best to get the best night's sleep I could get, you know. Like I got in there, I was shitting my pants, and like I remember, <laughs> I remember you guys. We you were having a joke about going to some like Melbourne venue. I was like, oh, they both know some venue where people go and hang out and drink. I was like, I was, I thought that was so cool and so impressive. So from from uh, an onlooker, like you seem to be, you know, quite quite relaxed with the experience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, yeah, but, but this is it, the interesting. Know. This is the interesting <laughs> thing, isn't it? I, I think I was just kind of, uh, I definitely look back and think I was stumbling my way through, you know, all of that. Um, maybe, you know, sort of thinking back to what you were saying earlier, you know, maybe that was kind of to our benefit to an extent because I always, res- there was, I was, I always felt slightly awkward, you know, the popularity and 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 the small level of, of fame that we we were sort of dabbling with and it never kind of it just never kind of sat comfortably with me and and probably maybe because I wasn't sort of ready for it or whatever um but you know in the long run maybe that was for the best you know like maybe sort of I came out of it not too kind of I I didn't give too much of myself away or something you know you kept you you kept the world at an arm's length. Yeah, perhaps. But um. But anyway, look, this conversation is getting on. We got to get to some. We got to talk about some music stuff. And I want to. Okay, cool. I, I want to. I want to uh, talk to you about um the music that was in your life when you were a kid growing up. The music that your parents may have been into. That you, your sort of first kind of memories of getting into music and and it kind of having a significant kind of role in your life. Well, there was, you know, stuff like the Beatles has feels like it's always just been there. Kind of like, you know, the goodies and Doctor Who. It's like the Beatles are just, the Beatles just always existed. Ubiquitous, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, do, did that come from one side, of, from your mum's side or your dad's side? Or, uh, well, or? from my mum, I mainly just lived with my mum. So right, was, okay. I was, so dad like, was not in the, on the scene at all? No, he wasn't. Yep. Yeah. Occasional visits, but, you know, no, he, right. was, he was not really involved. But um no my mum uh she, so we had records and I remember there was that I remember War of the Worlds being a big one which is okay. maybe which is maybe why I became a bass player because it's got some of the coolest bass lines of all, all time <laughs> uh, Herbie Flowers who played on Walk on the Wild Side actually uh, played on that um but uh, I remember there was there was a bit of Rikuda actually around oh, strangely yeah. enough like late eighties Rikuda um and. Gr- uh, Graceland's by Paul Simon was a really big record, and yes. Di- and Dire Straits as well. But Graceland, yes. Graceland's one of those records that I still love now. And I, in fact, um, I pretty much have been singing my. T- I got two. I have two boys, like a six-year-old and eight-year-old, and I pretty much sing them to bed every night, singing Graceland's to them. It's just, yeah. oh, it's one of those songs. You know, it really takes you on a journey. And um, um, what year did Graceland come out? It was it was late eighties, wasn't it? I think it was 1988. I just remember right. owning a lot of Stonewash. That's my memory. So, <laughs> oh no, I was 86. I came out in 86. Ah, uh, yeah. okay. But yeah, I mean, Graceland was almost like a thriller, or like it was one of those, eight, or like um, Born in the USA or something. It's like an yeah. 80s record that actually transcended just being a, a, a musical moment 
Mm. To the point of being like kind of a broader, kind of having this broader cultural impact. I mean, I think Graceland had that. It, it was a real moment, you know, where people really kind of went, this is something that we've never heard before. This is something new. But that's, the, but that's the interesting thing because, I mean, like you had all the apartheid thing going on and, and Paul Simon going over there and playing with black musicians and all of that jazz. I was mm. completely oblivious to any of that stuff going on. Yeah, all, yeah me all too. I, for me, like, and because Sting actually as well and, and is, was another big one. The Police, Sting, Eurythmics, yeah. that, that was also, they were really, really big um, factors. And also a bit of rap, like a bit of Run DMC was in there as well. But but for for albums like Graceland and that Dire Straits record with Money for Nothing on it and um, and also uh, Sting, it just sounded so mysterious to me. Like mm. I there was a the de- it was like looking into a bottomless pond of wonders or something. You <laughs> know, like there was just so much going on in there for me. And I and you know it's a it's a very different era now with kids because my kids know about Spotify. They have their own playlists and blah 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 blah. And they're really addicted to the screen. And I do kind of understand that in some senses because I, like I remember just sitting back on a beanbag in my stonewash, uh, at you know just look <laughs> looking at record covers. <laughs> There's you know, an image for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, we've all, been, we've all been there. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, just looking at the record covers, you know, just like, oh, studying all the pictures and the intricacies. And I, and I, and I realise with my kids when they're on the internet and looking at images, like they're probably experiencing that same mystery and they want to see the imagery and everything. But it's a really different thing because they're seeing a playlist and all these tiny little graphics, but there was something beautiful about the tangible thing of just putting putting on a 20-minute side of an album and just listening. Absolutely, and I think, you know, what you're talking about, there's something that's changed, you know, in the kind of digital age is that uh, the kind of mystery that we recall from our childhood getting into bands, Mm. it just doesn't seem to be that prevalent anymore. Like, I think it's almost impossible to be a mistake mysterious anymore because every everybody knows fucking everything. I don't I don't I don't know how you go with the whole Twitter, Instagram, Facebook thing. Part of me like in wants to embrace it because it, it's you know, artists will use artists should use whatever they've got at their hands. And if it was the Beatles or whoever your favourite band was growing up they would have used whatever technology was there and they would have been freaking awesome at it. You know, they would have still captured your imagination. But but for me personal personally I do I do kind of like struggle like, you know, for, you know, in my teens when I loved bands like Led Zeppelin, you know, I wanted to believe that they were like, you know, on a mountaintop, you know, studying wizardry and playing guitar, you know, like I just, I didn't want, I wouldn't want a weekly freaking Facebook or daily Facebook post of like, yeah, we just ate some eggs and some bacon and now we're trying to play this song and blah, blah. I don't want to know about the freaking domestic thing, but, but I understand that this is, you know, how artists connect with their um their their audience these days i st- i just you know still haven't quite got my head around how ha- how to do it gracefully yeah i mean look it's 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 changed it's irreversible now you know it's yeah, like, absolutely it's completely yeah. changed it will it'll never be like that again but but yeah i mean you know i i remember even just as recently as the you know nirvana in the 90s you know and there was so much mystery around nirvana and you know, this is pre-internet, so, you know, America was a fucking long way away, you know. Australia, and, and like, there wasn't that instant kind of media and all that kind of stuff. And, and places like Seattle and London and New York, or, I mean, they they really were, they were like other planets. And, and 
those you know there were certain art, like icon kind of artists that you know they were almost like fucking aliens you know they might as well mm, have come from absolutely. another planet yeah um because you know if you're a suburban kid in bull creek like i was people like kurt Cobain or you know like david bowie or whatever they were out of this world you know mm-hmm. and then all you know from where i live but now that we live in the kind of digital age and the internet and everything we're all exposed to everything everybody sees everything it's it's definitely um and it's not to say that you know uh, i'm not a total luddite you know i think there's a lot of wonderful the information age has been great in so many ways but when it comes to kind of music yeah i i, I don't know if it you know there's been a lot of yeah take that mystery has been taken away and that'll never happen again right you know maybe i i refuse to believe that uh the human you know uh interest in that mystery that we were talking about um, won't just come over and over again. I'm sure that for for young guys, you know, discovering music now, they're still discovering these artists who are around today who they're just like, holy crap, you know. And do you remember, like, up until about the age of maybe 24, it was no effort to find a new band and become obsessed with them, you know. But if you're, if you're a lifer and you just want to keep, you know, going deeper into it, you've actually got to, like, exercise a muscle to start, you know, discovering these bands. Otherwise, you, you kind of, you foreclose at that age you know you're yeah, like yeah. you're like you yeah. just still listen to those and we've all got those friends who still listen to like oh i just love smashing pumpkins you know they're just like my band <laughs> um but you know or whatever that band may be uh you know as you you got to make a lot more muscle and effort into it but i really believe that you know magical inspirational characters like kurt cobain will keep coming along and they will turn the whole thing on its head every single time and until like you know digital age downloads tweeting all that stuff will mean nothing because we'll all be so awe-inspired by the by the awesomeness that this person is 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 bringing to the table so i i believe that that will keep happening over and over again um let's talk about top 25 music so with this yeah with this with this bobcast um i've been asking my guests to reveal their you know their, their top 25 most played songs on iTunes and the you know as I've discussed in previous podcasts the idea is that you know reveal something about themselves and 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 about their personalities and about their their, their lives um, but also you know I, I also understand that um, not all of my guests are beholden to the uh, Apple Empire um, and so Cav I know that uh, you do not have a uh, an iTunes top twenty five playlist to refer to, but you do have a Spotify one, which kind of makes you even more like that's like next gen. It's you know? a little bit next gen, but as a, as an artist, I feel a little bit guilty sometimes because Spotify is a great service, and I use it all the time for like you know doing the dishes. You know, I'll make up playlists and all those kinds of things, but I also use it as a really great uh, thing for. Um, uh, you know, inspiration. So I'll, I'll put playlists together. It's really easy to do that kind of stuff, um, and I just I'll have playlists of of whatever's really inspiring me, and that will inform what I do with my songwriting and what and what I do with my production. I just I listen to it all the time. But in saying that, like artists don't make a lot of money out of streaming. I don't I don't think that's Spotify's fault or anyone's fault. But I think that unless everyone in the you know world has a, a streaming service, then artists are kind of making 
crap all out of it. I don't, and I don't know where the dust lies, but I do know that I really enjoy using Spotify. So it's on there. All right, here's one that jumped out to me because it's an artist that um, I'm a I'm a massive fan of. Um, yes, and 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 this, and this particular song is an interesting one because as okay. far as I know, it doesn't appear on any uh, particular uh, record of, of his. Okay, um, so it's by Beck, and yes. it's a song everybody's got to learn sometime. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's from the Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind uh, soundtrack, and it's actually a cover. It's a cover. It's a cover from some seventies track. When I when I um when I was writing the record that I'm doing at the moment, um, like it it was interesting because I wasn't having to consider everybody in my band's music collection to of what kind of record we're going to make. It was just really about the music that I was listening to, and I I loved that album that that sorry that movie when it came out Eternal Sunshine I just thought it was absolutely magical um, and that song came out at the end and oh it freaking killed me and the production is John Bryan who's amazing um, but Beck has this thing and like the first CD that I ever bought um, you know everyone talks about their first album mine was like a, a CD when CDs came out you know that was like my that was when I really started to invest in music and Beck's first album was the first album I ever bought and I just couldn't understand so, like, uh, so was that One Foot in the Grave was no uh, no no that came out afterwards it was Mellow Gold was the first oh, record Mellow Gold okay yeah and then One Foot in the Grave came out as a retrospective thing but um, okay but yeah uh, I just couldn't under- I loved it and I would listen to it every night before I went to bed and and all the time, and and it really set me on my path of like the next stage of my kind of songwriting career because I think I guess it would have been about like oh, what was it, like fifteen or something when it came out fifteen sixteen, um, so it was, so which is a great time for songwriters. It's it's where you really start to get into abstract thought and all those things. And so Beck was just kind of perfect. Um, and from that point on, it was kind of like the litmus test of like anything that I did uh, for myself was always like what would Beck do. Um, and my it's important. It's important, I reckon, to have those 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 kind of watermarks. You know, it's important to have those people as a songwriter and as a creative. Like, you know, I know I have heaps of them, and and yeah, I think that's a really cool point. And and the, and the only thing that like only criticism, which is a really small one, that I would ever make of Beck, which he kind of remedied when he did um, Sea Change, bastard. But um, it, like, is that. I, I love um, writers and lyric writers like Leonard Cohen where there's a intense kind of black personalness personalness about his yeah. um, his writing whereas Beck seems to kind of you know in a very wily way sidestep ever ever being in the target you know you can never catch him in your crosshair um, uh, but with sea change he really he really gave it and I think that was the point where I was just like oh he is the man, you know, like, I think, yeah. I'd, I think I'd almost lost interest a little bit. Like, I thought that everything he'd done up to that point was amazing and I listened to it. But when he came back with Sea Change, I was just like, yep, I'm I'm a Beck lifer now. I'm like, anything he does is just like, I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You couldn't agree with you more. Couldn't agree yeah. with you more. I loved Beck um, when he first came out when I was, in, you know, in high school and stuff. And um, by the time Midnight Vultures came out, and it was, I still loved it. It was heaps of fun. And it's still yeah. my wife's, my wife's favorite record, you know, because she, you know, <laughs> she just wants to dance. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's probably my, one of my least favorite big records. Not that yeah. I think it's, not that I think it's bad. I think it's a great record. But what Sea Change was like, that was just, you know, yeah. I, I really fell hard for that record and it had mm. such a huge influence. Now, I'm pretty sure that this song, this cover song, yeah. everybody's got to learn sometime. I don't know if you know who the original artist was. Did, we, did you already say that? 
No, I didn't even. I, I, it's like I, an eighties. It's a song from the eighties. Is it okay? I yeah, thought it yeah. Was, I thought it was seventies, um, but and well, I'll look it up. I'll do some while I talk. I'll do some Wikipediaing. But um, okay. I'm pretty sure from memory that this song came out. This was the first. This and you were talking about how it came out in that soundtrack. Um, this was the first song he released after Sea Change because ah, interesting. Because wow. I kind of remember hearing it and going, yeah, like it's got a lot of the same kind of aesthetic, like production-wise, it had a lot of the, mm. the same kind of aesthetics. And I, I look, I think the thing that Beck has always done in his whole career as well, which I think uh, any artist can relate to, is he's always kicked against what his last record was. And so, you know, you had Midnight Vultures and he kicked against it, you know, in the biggest possible way and did, uh, you know, Sea Change. But then he, he turned it around and he did Guero, which is actually... I would say probably I loved it at the time, but that's actually probably my least favorite record because it was like oh he kind of thought, felt like he had to go back and make a like a Beck record and and that's what right. it sounds like yeah, yeah, yeah. and and you know we've all we've all been guilty of doing that as artists because you kind of almost like back yourself into a corner and go okay I'm going to do that thing that I do um, and as soon as you do that it's almost like you're dead in the water but then he but then Beck turns around and will do something else you know which which will kick against that and you just like and your faith's restored again um and i and i get i guess that's what i mean by what would beck do as well you know so i uh wikipedia so everybody's gotta learn sometime uh is by the core a band called the corgis and it came out in 1980 the corgis Um, the corgis (laughs) 1980 obviously beck i i don't I have never heard the original version. I can only assume and imagine that it's completely different to Beck's kind of slow. F- uh, it's probably at twice the speed. I bet you Beck's probably recorded it in half time. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there you go. It, it does have that that kind of weird cheesy refrain at the end. It was like, ooh, ooh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, what else? What else from your from your uh, list do you want to chat about? I don't know. You throw you throw a song at me. Well, let's talk about somebody who you know. I don't have a strong affinity with. I haven't. Um, I don't sort of know a lot about this artist. So uh, this could be a good one for you to kind of talk about. And, and I <laughs> sort of say that knowing full well that you know I probably should. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's Lou Reed, and it's the song "Walk on the Wild Side." Yeah, Lou, Lou Reed's one of those guys I came to when I, I moved out of home when I was quite young, not because I had a terrible relationship with my mum or anything like that, but I've always been fiercely independent and I moved in with this 26-year-old and his uh, wife and who I worked with at the Fremantle Markets. And he had, a, again, it was early days of CDs, but he had an amazing record collection and he really kind of reintroduced me to the Beatles in a, in a slightly more adult manner. But he also uh, really got me into the Pixies um, and Velvet Underground as well. Um, and Lou Reed was one of those artists like the Velvet Underground that I really appreciated for a long time. Um, and Transformer is just a, an amazing album. But it was one of those things, I hate to admit it, it wasn't until I hit 35 that I got it for the right. first time. That's cool. And I think like it's interesting, like, you know, the way that you sort of described that, that preamble there was like, you know, Lou Reed... Is is it like for for our generation? You know, like for people that are sort of in their late thirties and grew up in the nineties. Lou Reed's kind of a he's a deep cut. You know, he's mm. someone that like you have to get into this band that then gets you into this band that gets you into this band that then 
you find Lou Reed and, and, and you come to Lou Reed. Like, you kind of have to go through the... You have to go, open all those doors, you know. Yeah, um, and it, and and once you go there, it's he's he's a kind of frustrating character because, I mean, like Transformer is a classic album, and, and it transcends like we we're talking about with um, uh, Graceland's by Paul Simon's. It it transcends the era that it came out in. It could it could just be any era, and and the songs are amazing. But it's produced by um, Mick Ronson and David Bowie. You know, and, but by Mick Ronson. Mick Ronson, straight straight off the back of them doing Ziggy Stardust, they um they got asked to come in and and do this Lou Reed record, um and. Uh, Bowie was a massive Lou Reed fan, so he was just like, yeah, bring it on. Um, and if you go and listen to that whole record, Bowie does all the backing vocals on it. And there's a really a, amazing series, which I'm sure you've seen, which is uh, classic albums. And the one one on Transformer is freaking awesome for a couple of reasons. One, it's got Herbie Flowers, you know, again, the bass player who played on uh, War of the Worlds. And and, uh-huh, he, and, right. it's, and it's got him talking about Walk on the Wild Side and about how he came in and he learned, he's a session guy, right? This English kind of geezer, like session dude. Um, and so he plays like the double bass, uh, electric bass and tuba on that record. Because that's, if you're a session bass player, you had to play the tuba back in the day. <laughs> But um, but anyway, he comes on and they had this trick where they get paid like a rate for doing like one bass line. But if you could do an overdub, you would get twice the rate. So he was like, oh, yeah, I've got this little trick. And like, and so he does the, the they ask for him to do a double bass thing. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, cool. I've got this idea, like work with me. And he does this double bass line and then he, he doubles it doing the, the, the seventh on the, on the electric bass. And doing the dun 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 dun, which is this iconic bassline, um, and it's so cool. But the only reason why he did it is because he was trying to get paid more money, and, <laughs> <laughs> which which I love. Um, but yeah, I love it because so um, you know you've got Herbie Flowers on there, but also Bowie's backing vocals. Um, if you listen, if you go and watch um, the the classic albums it's they you know they solo all the tracks and him doing um the backing vocals to satellite of love is so fantastic it's like satellite it's so good and then you got mick ronson who's in there the whole time just being um awesome and they had such a great relationship mick ronson because and david bowie because uh, ronson was the arranger so he did a lot of the string arrangements a lot of you know and all the guitar stuff on there was very 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 cool even though he was like this kind of scouser gardener you know um <laughs> yeah. uh, which didn't really fit bowie's image at the time but but you had this perfect coming together with that album transformer and walk on the wild side is like I think it's one of my favorite sounding songs of all time. Like I listen to it and it's like a warm hug in a bowl of soup in the middle of winter time or something, you know? Um, oh. Okay, let's do one more song, all right? We'll do this number okay, three. And right. so and so all, to all the Bobcasters out there, and, 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 you know, at some point we might come up with a cool name, but uh, at the moment it's just Bobcasters. Um, you, all these songs are going to be put up on a playlist called uh, on Spotify called Good Evans, It's a Bobcast Soundtrack. So every time I do one of these podcasts, there are three songs from every episode um, on that list. So we're already up to like, you know, I've done, this is like number seven. So six times three, what are we talking like? There's like 18 songs or something. Um, and it's already a really fucking weird and eclectic kind of playlist. Um, so this is going to be the third one. And what about if we do, because seeing as though you did sort of send 
semi-mid list. Um, a song that kind of uh, caught my attention, Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon? Man, that's such a great song. Uh, Neil, Neil Diamond's one of those guys, he's, he's like... He's actually written some really great songs, but I don't know if he's a great singer. <laughs> For starters, if you just look at the song, the song is so cool because it feels like there's an honesty. And, and I really like, even though it's a classic song, like, Girl, ding, ding, you'll be a woman soon. It's got, the melody is pretty classic, but then it's got like, you know, I can count all the times. It's so good, man. It's like he's ranting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but... Yeah, Neil Diamond, he was one of those guys who um, he worked, you know, Tin Pan Alley or whatever those those little right. areas of New York was called where they had the, all the songwriters yeah. um, who hung out there. He was he was signed to that that whole thing. And, and I did he, not know that. And so he wrote, um, uh, then I saw her face. Doo, wow. Doo, 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 and That's I'm amazing. a believer. Yeah. So he, he actually had some hits and stuff and then decided, uh, like a lot of those guys, um, to go out and, uh, and do it himself. Uh, and, uh, and he just, his songs, like you, you look back at his list of songs and you go, fuck, they're amazing. But often they became more popular from other people selling, uh, singing them. And, uh, I don't know if this is a very good example, but he wrote like red, red wine, right? Stay close You're to onto me. something here. You're onto something here because with this song, mm. girl, you'll be a woman soon. I'm sure there'd be a lot of people out there whose mm. first experience with this song would have been on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack yeah. because it was like a really important uh, song and an well, important uh, moment but, in the movie. But it was Urge Overkill doing a cover and like Urge what Overkill. A, and what That's a cool, right. what a cool band to do a cover of. Fantastic! That song. They, they, they they slayed it. They fucking slayed they, it. They they nailed it. But yeah, Neil Diamond's one of those guys, and it's, I only reflected on this recently because I don't listen to Neil Diamond records, but I, I love. Like some of his songs, his songs. Yeah. I get that now too, because you know what else is, um, you know, when Johnny Cash was mm. putting out those uh, American series records and he was yeah. doing the covers, oh. and he did Neil Diamond's Solitary yeah. Man. I know and, what a, what a great fucking song, oh my and then God. sung sung, sung I love by that song, sung by old mate. You just like this is amazing, sung by Cash. but then you but but no, then you, you're right. It's like I'm a fan of his songs. Yeah, same. But now I but get it, what you're saying about him. Maybe he's not a great singer because he writes great songs, but other people have like done amazing versions of his stuff. I saw him on uh, Jimmy Kimmel, or I think it is, the other night, The Tonight Show anyway, uh, and uh, and he just released a new record. And, man, he he can hardly hold a tune, bless him. You know, like he's like... And like but then I look back and I'm like... I'm like he's always been like that. He was he he was never a, a strong singer, and and I and I think about this, and I like like Luke Steele is a really great example of someone who actually loved the sound of his voice, and he's a great songwriter. You know, we, we know him, we love him. He's from Perth, um, but uh, I I've always thought with um, people like you know when he, uh, he was in the original version of Sleepy Jackson, and you had Justin Burford who also wrote some great songs, but Justin's voice was. He could do anything with his voice, um, and a, as a consequence, I, I think that you know he he was an amazing singer, but his songwriting lagged a little bit more than someone like Luke, 
who really struggled to sing some of the stuff, but because he couldn't actually reach those notes, his imagination was a lot more vivid and his, um, you know, his palette of, of, of what he wanted to do, because, you know, some people can do anything. Like Luke can't. He doesn't have one of those voices. It's a, I like his voice. It's very kind of interesting and iconic, and he's work, he works it. But, um, but really, I think he comes up with such great melodies because he's not great at, at singing them, you know? Like, I think there's a difference between a great singer and a great vocalist, right? Like, a great singer is just somebody who has a traditionally beautiful voice, a perfect voice that can, you know. And But there are so many, so many of my favourite singers slash vocalists are very fucking imperfect. I mean, you could almost... Uh, well, look, you, go, go, you could almost you go, back, go back to the fucking Beatles and say, like, you know, Paul McCartney was the singer and John Lennon was the vocalist. John Lennon had a great voice, but, like, it wasn't pure. It, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as, like, a pure kind of singing voice. If you're, as a vocalist, if you're able to mine deep into an emotion, then I think that just carries so much more weight than... Well, interestingly you know, enough, if you look back at the... the the three vocalists we just looked at, you know, like Beck, Beck's actually kind of, he sings quite well, but he's more of a, a, what did you say? Like a, he's more of the vocalist than the singer. Is that right? Yeah. Lou sure. Reed, definitely the vocalist, not the singer. Yeah. And, Neil Diamond. You're yeah. right. Yeah. You're right. All three. Yeah. And it's yeah. funny. I mean, I, I know, I know that you've probably lived with this with your voice as well. And, but uh, I don't ever feel like for myself personally, I was ever a, uh, a natural singer it took me a long time to kind of get to a, a place and every I, even now like i look at my voice and i'm like oh i i didn't used to be able to sing before but now i can sing you know really really well um but I, it but it's always changing all the time i, I and i feel like I, I have one of those voices that's a bit like a, a sore thumb you know it just pokes out it doesn't doesn't fit into into uh you know if you put a bunch of vocalists together i.e. doing that Basin Birds thing, like my, I can always hear my fucking voice poking out. <laughs> that's like a different thing, though, because, I mean, it's that's a big difference between, like, being the lead singer in a rock and roll band and sure, then being yeah. part of, like, four singers in a folk group. I mean, that's a massive difference. I mean, yeah. I think, like, you are able to do things with your voice that, you know, that I can't and that a lot of singers can't. I, I think that... You know, at the end of the day, it's all about and, you know, trying to kind of dodge cliches a little bit here, but I'm probably going to walk straight into one. <laughs> um, I think it's all about just finding your voice, you know, and mm. embracing who you are and singing from the fucking heart. And mm. I, I I used to get, I used to cop so much shit for my voice in the early days of Jim and I, and I, I, that, I, I believed it, you know, that criticism stung. And and I I get it you know because it, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I, I reckon um, when we were in the back of the tour bus, like cruising around doing basin birds, you were easily the easiest of us to to um, to, to to do um, like a caricature of. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, it would come to you and ever and everyone would just go back to early jabs and, and go yeah, to the yeah. like, the, the yeah. nasally thing. I like mama mama, and then yeah. uh, and then. Pikey, we'd go to Pikey and we'd be like, hoodie diddly boodly doodle and try to yeah, fit, yeah, as, fit yeah. as many words yeah. in as possible. And then totally. I remember I remember you guys going to me and all of you guys were like, me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was your impression of me. <laughs> yeah. 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 But um 
But yes, thank you so much, Cav, for chatting to us tonight. And um, no worries. Do, oh, do you want to plug anything? We, you know, you've got a brand oh. new EP coming, so do some plugging, and we'll. That's all right. Well, that's all right. You just you just do what you do. Okay. Cool. All right. All right. Kill thank dude. you so much, buddy. No See you, Cav. Cheers. Cheers. Mate. Bye. Bye.